So uh, turn with me. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture today. Hosea chapter 11. That's in the Old Testament, right? Uh, and so you've got, you know, uh, Daniel, Hosea, that kind of thing. So, so uh, uh, Hosea is way back there before Amos and Joel and all that, uh, and after Daniel. So Hosea chapter 11. And then we're also going to look at 1 John chapter 4 a little bit later. And so Hosea chapter 11, 1 John 4. And I'm going to, uh, hi buddy, uh, I'm going to introduce today a subject we're going to press into for a number of weeks. And basically today we're going to start talking about basically God's heart, God's love. And the title of this series is called The Ravished Heart of God. Ravished meaning that he is overwhelmed and undone and overcome with love for you. Not rabid, uh, as, as uh, Aaron and I were joking a couple weeks ago, not rabid like, you know, insane or something, although he loves you with an insane amount of love, but ravished. And you'll see why I chose that word, why the Lord kind of put that word on my heart, but we're going to, guess, kind of press into this, all right? So uh, don't worry, this is the Bible, even though it, it looks like something else. No, I'm just messing. I know sometimes people are like, what is that? That doesn't look like a Bible, you know? <laughs> well, we've got the Bible right here. So we're just going to open up the Word. So Hosea chapter 11, we're going to read uh, verses 8 through 10, and then I'll kind of explain what the Lord is saying. So Father, I do ask that you would reveal your heart to us today in this next season. Lord, we ask that you'd break down every wall and every lie and every hindrance that would keep us from understanding and receiving your love. I ask you, Father, for your spirit of revelation to come upon all of our hearts and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much that you would give us this word. We're not going through the motions today, but we know that you're here and that this is your word to us. And so we open our hearts to receive what you would have, knowing that your word is going to change us. You agree with that? Amen. Come, Lord. All right, so here it is. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, 9, and 10. God says this to the people of Israel, and then I'll explain it. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west. Verse 11, they shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Amen. So anytime you read the prophets, uh, people say, what? In fact, I remember somebody like that I went to Bible college with was like, I just try to stay away from those books. You know, I'm just going with Jesus. And I was like, totally. But there's some good stuff in that Old Testament. Here's the deal. God is speaking through a man named Hosea. Hosea is a prophet you know, pastor, minister, whatever you want to say, but he's basically probably like an itinerant prophet, and he's speaking to the people of Israel, God's people, back in the Old Testament before Jesus came, a few hundred years before, and he's speaking to, basically, for those of you who know, there, the, uh, there was, Israel had had a division, 
Basically, so there was the southern tribes of Israel and the northern tribes of Israel, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And basically, so there was kind of like, you know, kind of like the, the great divide when we had uh, the north and the south fighting each other. They had a long season in, in the history of Israel where there was a north and a south and they were divided. Well, uh, God sent Hosea to the northern tribe of Israel. And at this time, Israel, these northern tribes, they had been worshiping idols. They had basically made God in their own image. And they had these golden calves that basically were supposed to represent God. And yet they were basically just idols worshiping God just like the other people in their, in their culture. And so God, they still use the word Yahweh. They used still use, oh, we're still worshiping God. But they had created a false image of God. Not only that is they had become very, very rich and they're very complacent. And but what, obviously, you guys know how that works a lot of times. That means the rich get rich and the poor get poor. And so the rich actually had been oppressing the poor. They had been, in a sense, gobbling up the lands around them and taking lands from people. You know, you go into debt, you sell your land, the rich person buys your land. Well, back in those days, the way God wanted it is he wanted everyone to keep their land. That's the way God had set up his covenant with the people of Israel. Well, these leaders and these rich people, they weren't going with that, right? They were just getting rich, and they were very, there was a lot of complacency in that time. And, um, and so there was a lot of false security, obviously. Hey, we're doing just fine. We're doing just fine. You know what I'm saying? God must be blessing us. We're worshiping these golden calves, and we're blessed. It's working, right? So they are very falsely secure. And God comes to the nation of uh, Israel, and he warns them, obviously again and again, if you know the history of the Old Testament, I mean, he kept sending prophet after prophet to say, turn, 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 you know? But basically, in Hosea, he becomes very, very specific. This is why, if you noticed in those verses, that God mentions the nations of Assyria. Because Assyria was rising up in power, and just in, oh, I don't know, a handful of years, Assyria was going to come and take Israel out. And so this prophet Hosea was saying, repent, change. Do, you guys are on the brink of destruction. This nation of Assyria is going to rise up and destroy you and take you into exile. You need to repent. We need to seek the Lord. We need to cry out to God for mercy. Now, now of course, why does a prophet say things like that? Is it because God's in a bad mood? No, it's because that really God really loves and really doesn't want those things to happen. And so he's actually warning and calling for that would avert the disaster, right? And so God is literally saying, this is going to happen. There's going to be punishment for your sin if you don't wake up. That's the context of this letter, or rather this prophecy, which, which somehow was written down. may not have been a letter. And yet in the midst of this book, when, when God is saying through Hosea, there is sin and there is injustice, and, and the people are like, oh, come on. You know, how could, we're Israel. How could we ever fall? You know, how, how could this ever happen to us? In the midst of all that and their stubbornness and the refusal to understand God's heart, yet in the midst of that, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, is this amazing reality about God's heart. Because in the midst of that, God doesn't say, eh, sin. That's okay. You know, it's a cultural thing. We'll just change. You know, just go with the times, you know. I know I was a little uptight, guys. I'm probably a little over the top. I'll loosen my standards. It's okay. You guys don't have to change. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that. And you listen to what he does say. 
Listen to what he does say. He says to these people who are sinning against him, who have made God in their own image, and he says to them, in fact, actually just a couple verses before this, he says that uh, even in verse 5, he says that they're going to return to the land of Egypt. Assyria shall be their king because they refused to repent. Right there in verse 5. In light of their refusal to repent. So I, I want you to understand how serious the situation is. And that these people are not necessarily believing God or receiving His love, right? Or receiving His truth. He describes that there is going to be disaster, verse 6 and 7. And the sword shall slash in cities, devour its districts, consume them because of their own counsels. Because they're following their own ways instead of God's ways. Verse 7, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none against Him. They use His name. They pray. But they don't acknowledge Him for who He really is. They do not exalt Him. They, 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 uh, Isaiah said it this way, they honor me with my lips, but their hearts are far from me. They might sing songs, but they don't really mean it. In midst of all that, in the midst of all that, listen to the heart of God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were cities that were next to, in the same region as Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed in the burning fire thing that came down. So God is literally saying, how can I destroy you? How can I let you just go? How can I let... And he tells you what's going on inside his heart. Listen to what's going on inside the heart of God. How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Do you hear what's going on in the heart of God? The word churns in the New King James there, it says, my, my heart churns, it literally means to overthrow or conquer an army. It's actually a very intense, violent word. God says that inside of him, his own heart is overthrown and overcome by something. There's literally this war or this battle inside of God. I'm not suggesting that God is schizophrenic or that God is, doesn't know who He is. This is really the reality going on in the heart of God when there is sin and when there is judgment. He says, my heart is overthrown. Something within me has overcome me. And he tells you what it is in verse 8. My sympathy, my compassion, my pity is aroused, is kindled, or inflamed, something inside of him 
that God calls compassion, something that God calls sympathy or pity, he says that this compassion, when he looks out at his people who are sinning, looking out at his people who are rebelling against him, who are creating lies regarding who God is and who are stubbornly refusing to repent, he looks out at them knowing the judgment that awaits them because judgment is a reality. Consequences for our sin is a reality. And he looks out at them and he says, I can't do it. How could I give you up? How could I do this to you? I can't destroy you completely because something has been awakened inside of me. Something like a fire has burst inside of me and it's called my compassion. And this compassion, this mercy, this love has conquered my heart. And I can't do it. It's the heart of God. And he says, as a result of that, verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. Now, if you know, historically, he still punished Israel because they chose not to repent. I'm not talking about whether or not judgment is true or not true. Like, it is a reality. There's only one reason why Jesus had to die, because someone had to pay the price. But there is a greater reality than judgment. I know it might sound weird to say that. That God is absolutely righteous and just in who he is. And yet, what does James chapter 1 say? His mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that the same phrase? In verse 8, I never saw that before. His mercy does what to judgment? A word of victory. His, his mercy, according to the New Testament, conquered the judgment that was in his heart. That there is a greater reality than anger and judgment in the heart of God. He is a just and righteous God, he hates sin. And he will judge it. And yet what is burning inside of him the whole time? His compassion. You remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem? Jesus is riding in on a donkey to Jerusalem. And he begins to weep over the city of Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And days, just days from him walking into Jerusalem, they were going to put him on a Roman cross and kill the Messiah that God had promised to bring to them. And as he's writing in, he's weeping. You know what I'm talking about? He's writing into Jerusalem and he's weeping. And he says to Jerusalem, Oh, if only you knew the day of your visitation. He says, you don't even know. 
your, your, wall, your, your, your stones will, will not be left on top of each other. Your whole city is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, just 40 years or so after Jesus' resurrection because they missed their Messiah. And he weeps. Oh, if only you knew. And he said, how long I have been willing to bring you to myself. How long has it been my will to bring you to myself? That is what I want. That is my will. That is my desire. And yet he says, but you were not willing. That's what he says over Jerusalem. It was you who were not willing. But me was always willing. Even to the end. Even to the end. First Timothy 2 says that God wills that no one, no one, would perish, but that all would be saved, would repent, and come to the knowledge of Christ. Listen to what he's saying. My heart is overthrown. Mercy has conquered my judgment. I cannot come in the fierceness of my anger. And what happens in light of this is he promises to restore Israel. Even now, even now, after 70 AD happened. Jesus is risen from the grave. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. There's still a promise. This is a kind of a random point, but there's still a promise in Romans chapter 11 that God will save all of Israel, his people. See, how, how do I know that, that, that judgment is a greater reality? I'm sorry, mercy is a greater reality than judgment. Did, did God create the world because he was angry? I'm just so mad. just want to make something so I could destroy it. Now you laugh because you know that that's just ludicrous. And he didn't create the world because he was needy. He created the world because he loves. He didn't destroy Adam and Eve when they sinned. He didn't leave the planet and start a new one. He sent his only son to bear our sin because mercy triumphs over judgment. Our problem became his problem and he took it upon himself to make us right with himself because his mercy triumphs over judgment because he loves. How come he can't give up Ephraim, That's, which, is a, which was a region in a tribe in Israel? How come he cannot let his people go? Because he had made a covenant promise to them. But it's the same reason why when Adam and Eve sinned against God, though it caused destruction in the world, the moment they sinned, God put into, into execution a plan of redemption to bring them back, to bring all of us back. He didn't destroy them. He didn't say, I will never talk to you again. No, you see all throughout the Bible, God interacting with human beings, drawing them, wooing them back to himself, and ultimately preparing. Why did it take so long? Just a lot of preparation to bring in the fullness of time his son Jesus, that Jesus would become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That if you have put your trust in Jesus, you are dead to sin and alive to God. You're free and you are righteous and God has made you right with himself and you have peace with God. Why? Because he loves. That's why he made 
you. Even Adam and Eve, why has he never rejected humanity? Why is he still pursuing human beings? Why has he not returned to this earth yet? Because he made a covenant with himself and with us. He covenanted in love, unfailing love, when he created humanity to be our God. It is impossible for God to abandon his creation because it is not in his heart. It's also impossible for him to not be just and righteous. It's impossible for him to be like, eh, you know, sin, not a big deal. That, that's impossible. He will be righteous, always be righteous, and sin is sin, and righteousness is righteousness, and he loves righteousness, hates wickedness. He will not change, but his mercy triumphs over judgment. And so he made a way, Jesus Christ. I want you to see something here that you may not uh, have ever understood. And this sets the stage for where we're going in these next few weeks. Because this is not something we just want to have like a, a nice idea about. This is not like a, yeah, that's cool, God loves me. Yeah. You know? We want to go deep in this. We want this to transform everything about us individually and about our church. Listen to this. He says that his heart is overcome within him by his sympathy or compassion. His compassion for us has con- or for Israel and for us has conquered his heart triumphed over his own anger against sin. And now listen to what he says is the reason why his compassion overcomes or wins. He says in verse 9, For I am God and not man. I am the Holy One in your midst. I am not like you. I'm not like you. I'm not anywhere close. I am God. I'm not a human being. I'm the Holy One. Now, see, most of us, we think holy means pure. But you really have to understand the word holy if you're going to understand what God is actually saying in this verse. Because He is saying... That the very fact that his love or compassion wins his heart for you is evidence that he is holy and God. Like he is basically saying that this characteristic trait of me, that mercy triumphs judgment, that love is the greatest reality in the heart of God. He says that is what defines me. I'm God. He says this is what defines me. Holy, people think of holy, we think, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's pure. You know, people think of that, right? You've got to be holy, you think pure, like don't lust or something like that. Or other times people will say, oh, okay, he's holy in the sense that like, like we could, we're like just totally like can't even be like God, you know? Like he has all power and he has all authority and he ha- he's, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. He's, he's omnipotent, he has all power. Right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. Like, that's just like qualities that we don't possess, right? We're finite, limited creatures with only a limited amount of ability, a limited amount of you know, resources and knowledge and wisdom and all that kind of stuff, right? So we would say, for example, that God is holy in the sense that like, he's just like 
totally different from us. True. The word holy literally means other than. Okay, I mean, like the word literally, I should actually say literally, the word means separated, set apart. But in the context of God describing himself as God, not man, he is saying that I am completely separate or distinct from human beings. Literally, that, that, that God is completely separated from everything created. He's the only one who is uncreated. Are you, go, you guys cool with a little bit of Theology 101 here? This is important. Laying a foundation here. I love theology. So, a little Theology 101. Bring it back in here. He's totally uncreated. He's been forever. He is the first and the last, right? He is from everlasting, and he is to everlasting. But who created God? No one. He is. He said, I am who I am. He is God. And so literally, when you say the word holy, you are saying you are completely other than anything else. You are completely unique. He's the only one who could truly be considered unique in the essence of the word, right? Infinitely, transcendently, far beyond, immeasurably beyond us. Completely unlike us in every single way. See, here's the deal. Instead of thinking of the word holy, like when we sing you know, up there on the song, you know, holy, 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 we're not saying pure, pure, pure. And we're not saying, you know, uh, 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 but, but we are, and, and, and actually, and we're not necessarily like listing one of his attributes, you know? Well, you know, God loves and God is faithful and God is sovereign and God is all-powerful and God is holy. No, 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 don't think of it like that. Think of it rather as the word holy is more like the pinnacle of the mountain where everything else kind of flows. Think of holy as the umbrella term, that when you say God is holy, you are saying he is all that he is. You are God. You are who you are, who you say you are. It it, it is the umbrella term. It is the descriptor. And what you are saying when you are saying you are holy, you are saying you are holy other than, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely, utterly, absolutely, infinitely, transcendently unique. God and not man. God and not a human being. Uncreated. He's completely Yes, sovereign, meaning he has all the authority. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. Holy. But a lot of times, we'll say that for the things about God that human beings can never be. Right? Eternal. Infinite. Wow. Holy. But why then does God say in his word, be holy for I am holy, if you can't be like him? Why does God say, be holy for I am holy? Is he like totally like tricking us? (laughs) Let's see them try that one. They are just going to beat their heads against that one all their whole life. Oh, I got it. I'll just give them a bunch of rules and that'll really set them free. 
right. That's what we'll do. We'll follow rules and then we'll be holy. Is God saying when he says, be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter 1, it's all over the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. Is he saying, you need to be infinite like I am infinite? Not going to happen, right? You need to be sovereign like I am sovereign. Is he saying, be holy for I am holy? You're going to be your own God and get your own planet. I don't think so, you know what I'm saying? Heresy, okay? That's just like weird. Some people say those things. No, 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 no. But he made us in his image to bear his image and to be holy like he is holy. See, there are what we call, again, Theology 101, there are what we call incommunicable attributes. Big word. This is like college level, okay, guys? Incommunicable attributes, which mean that you and I cannot be like that ever. They don't communicate or transfer from God to us, meaning we'll never be sovereign. We can't go, you know, just, you know, just gonna make my own planet. You know, we just can't do stuff like that. Okay. And we're good like, we're cool like that, right? We're good. We're good. But there are what theologians call communicable attributes. That there is something about being made in the image of God that we were literally to reflect our maker. And we were literally to carry and bear his image. And he desires and he made us, he literally built us, you know, like with the operating system to be able to like do the upload, download thing. He made us with all the hardware and the software and the DSL connection, spiritually speaking, to be able to communicate or transfer from who he is to who we are so that we would be like him. That is one of the big reasons he created us to know him and to bear his image and to rule and reign with him. So even with the sovereignty thing, you, you and I actually were given realms of authority to rule the earth. And in terms of all-knowing, we can't be all-knowing, but you know, there's really no limit to creativity. And we as humans were to bear the image of the creative one and we were to create and, 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 to, and to make things like this, like iPads where you could actually do this with your finger and the pages turned. That's absolutely mind-blowing. My wife was like, how do you push that? And something happens. Like, how does that work? You know? And so we were literally, in a sense, though you could never be infinitely or eternally such as God. There are those incommunicable attributes. We'll never be God. Yet God wants to transfer who he is to us, even in the sense of his wisdom, his knowledge, his abilities. But have you ever thought, and maybe you have, maybe this is a simple thought, but for me it was a profound one when I first realized it, have you ever thought that God is holy in his love? It's not love, faithfulness, righteousness, sovereignty, holy. No, it's holy in his righteousness, holy in his sovereignty, holy in his love, that God is holy other than us. And when God is talking about his righteousness, he's completely different from us. And when he's talking about his love, he is completely different from us. And yet he says, be holy as I am holy. That he desires for who he is to impact who we are 
so that we bear his image. See, the problem is that we have made God in our own image. We have such a weak view of God. And I'm not necessarily referring to the sovereign nor the all-powerful part. We have a weak view of God's holy love, compassion that ruins and ravishes His heart. And what we have done in the world and worse in the church is we have so weakened and diminished the holiness of God in things like His faithfulness that He cannot lie. And in His mercy that triumphs judgment that we have made God in our own image and justified our own lack. We base the way we relate to one another on our personality, on our upbringing, on cultural values and worldview. We define love the way human beings define love. Okay, I'm going to be a little mean here. So people who say things like, man, I just really understand God's love as a father now that I'm a father. Okay, that... Okay, let me just say, that's good. Praise God, okay? That's wonderful. But really, really, that's, that's the beginning and that's the end of your understanding of God's love? You? Sorry. Okay, now, sorry, because that is good. It's good. Good start, maybe. And I'm actually, God does reveal his love through being a parent because you're made in his image. Okay, so I'm not necessarily trying to say that's like wholly wrong. I'm more trying to argue, really? You're the standard? Like really, how you feel about your kids, that's God? That's the end? Mm-mm. That's a, that's a good maybe piece to the puzzle and maybe a good start. But without a revelation of who God is from His Word, that He has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, we cannot know the holy love of God. And because we have defined God's love by our lack and made God in our image, it has caused tremendous problems in the church. I just want to quote something to you here. Let me see here. See if I can do this. There we go. This is by a man named A.W. Tozer, great theologian. You could read his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. 
Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes in your mind when you think of God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential leaders think about God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to an imperfect and ignoble thought about God. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century, this is some 60 years ago, is so decadent, or decadent, I'm sorry, so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God, and listen, and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. That was 60 years ago. And I find that to be so prophetic of our time. Listen to this. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God. That he is what he is like and what we as moral beings must do about him. If you want to heal the fruit of the tree, you heal the root. If there are cracks in the 20th story of your high-rise, you look for a flaw in the foundation. I guarantee that whatever issue going on in your life is, or as he made the comment about the church, whatever is going on in the church, whatever problem there might be, it is at the heart or at the root or at the foundation a problem in the knowledge of God. Hosea actually says this earlier in his letter, or in his book, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 4. He says, God says through Hosea, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And he was talking about the knowledge of God. All that to say, what is our response? We must know the heart of God. This is not a casual thing. This is not a side Thing. This is not an irrelevant theology 101 thing. This is the root thing. This is the heart of the matter. And if you want to see something changed in your life out here, then we go down there and deal with what's going on in our heart and our mind regarding who God is. What do we need? We need a revelation of God in Christ. We need a revelation of who God is from the Word of God, bigger than my experience, bigger than what our world says about God, bigger than what, what just, just, you know, well, I was always raised by thinking about God, God's just mad at people, and this and that, you know, well, if God's sovereign, why would He allow evil, and, blah, blah, and all these different questions we have have never been answered, because we don't know the revelation of God's, from God's Word. Bigger, deeper, more truer, This book 
the word of God is the only thing that can reveal to us truly, absolutely, who God is as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That he is a holy God, not man, but God. And that in his holiness, he has loved us with a holy love. With a holy love. I'm going to read one section, just one verse out of First uh, John 4. I told you we'd go there. I'm not going to spend, we'll spend like one minute here. Just First John 4, 18 and 19. And then we'll respond. First John 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him, or some translations just say we love, period, because he first loved us. What is that perfect love in verse 18? It is the holy Love of God that he loved us first. John says, this is love, not that we loved God. You don't know what love is by how you love another person. You don't know what love is by how you love God. You know love by how God loved us in Christ. This is love, verse 10. Perfect love that he loved us first. It's the love that he had for us before the creation of the world. The love that he had in creating and in sending his only son to die for us. This is God's love. And listen, this is the love that drives out fear. At the root of whatever's going on inside of you, it is fear. It is fear at the very root or at the very foundation which causes us to live out of that selfishness to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves, to hurt other people. It is fear rooted in dysfunctional relationships, either trying to control people with our anger or let them control us because we're afraid we're going to be people-pleasing. I'm telling you, at the heart of religion and legalism is fear. At the heart of even financial things going on in your life or in our culture, it is fear. Fear is this disease that entered in Genesis chapter 3. When human beings sinned against God, sin was the problem, fear was the, was the poison. It, it entered the heart of people, and it caused them to fear God's rejection, fear each other's rejection, and live in shame and defensiveness and fighting and jealousy and quarreling and etc. and etc. And yet it says here that God's perfect love drives out fear. So how do you get emotional wholeness and joy and feel free and find completeness in your life? How is it that you could awaken love for God? You, oh, I want to be more passionate for God and love God. I want to be more disciplined. How, how is it that you could bring wholeness and healing to your relationships? You know, we just don't know how to talk to one another. We just say mean things to one another. How is it that you could actually it, it, cause that thing to happen in your life? I mean, praise God for healthy relationships, seminars, and we need that kind of stuff. Give us the practical house too. It'll help us to see who God is. But at the root of it, perfect love, the revelation of God's perfect holy love will drive out that root poison in your heart. And you, and you, don't, and you, don't, get, you don't get darkness out of a room by taking buckets of darkness and trying to get it out. You don't do it by like, okay, I got to work on being a better person, better person, better person, you know, work really hard. 
Focus on myself and all my weaknesses. Beat yourself up. You get darkness out of room by turning on the light. And his perfect love like light just drives darkness, fear, brokenness. And I, this is what, what's going to happen in our church. As we press into this, you're going to find fear falling off of your heart. You're going to find confidence rising. And you're going to be like, I don't, wow, I, I'm more confident. Why am I more confident in who I am and God's love? And why am I more rest at rest? Why am I more free? Why am I more, you're going to find perfect love drive out fear. And you're going to find, why am I more compassionate towards hurting broken people? Why do I want to share my faith more? I guarantee, literally just fear you're going to fall off. That's the number one thing hindering us from sharing Jesus to other people, right? And, oh, okay, I gotta be bold. I gotta be bold. No, you need a revelation of God's perfect love. All you gotta do, just gorge yourself on the perfect love of God. It's gonna just drive fear out. You're gonna be like, oh my goodness, I love lost people. Where did that come from? You're going to find yourself, oh my goodness, I was bold all of a sudden, and I didn't have to try to do it. I'm declaring to you, church, that's who we are going to be. That's where God is taking us. That literally, you're going to find wholeness just bubbling up inside of you. You're going to find, oh my goodness, I didn't rip my spouse's head off that time. I was a little nicer. You're going to find that as you focus on the love of God, you're going to deal with the root issue. All the other things, like going to a healthy relationship seminar and just holding your tongue or whatever, it's going, to become, it's going to become that much more anointed or powerful because you're going to deal with the root and the supernatural power of God's love is going to enable you to be holy as he is holy. Luke, Luke's going to lead us in response and just seal this as we start this journey into the heart of God. Thanks, man.